Welcome to VCR, a Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. And this is part two of The Dirty Dozen, where three misfits try to recount a movie as spoilerful as possible. And we're all dirty, <laughs> too. Yeah. Like, all look of at us, us have not shaved in a little while. <laughs> yeah. And I can yes. smell Michael from here. Yep. Oh, Sorry. Brutal. <laughs> I can smell him from here. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, this is uh, Jason's choice film, partially in light of your interest in Charles Bronson's uh, filmography, and... I got to say, I really enjoyed this one. I'm glad that you brought this to the table. Yeah, I was uh, like, Charles Bronson just keeps coming up as this awesome uh, actor to watch from the 60s, 70s. Uh, I'm not sure how late he actually kept going, but um, this one was a, a classic Charles Bronson where he's just a badass as usual. And that's always enjoyable when you're looking for something... Uh, old-timey and warlike this is uh this is a good one you know what my favorite charles bronson moment from the movie was when uh he, this is spoilers right yeah yeah yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. i guess we should say that like this is full spoilers full and, spoilers yeah if you are interested in this movie and if you like i think this is a pretty good movie that holds up pretty well for the most part you should check out our primer episode before you listen to this episode where we're gonna talk about everything assuming that you've seen this movie at this point okay Got so, shoot m- my favorite Charles Bronson moment for the movie is so he's alone in the bathroom taking a leak and these two other soldiers come in to rough him up and get information out of him. So he finishes taking a leak, he walks towards the door and there's these two big guys in like heavily pressed military uniforms like standing there with like their chests out and he, Charles Bronson's just like, hey, you're in the way. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so not intimidated at all. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and... Even as he's getting like the shit kicked out of him, he's um, just throwing out quick little quips uh, to rile them up because he's like, I don't care about this. Like, you're not hurting me, really. Yeah, he's a man who cares about very little things. Like, he he doesn't have a lot of passions. Like, there's a really funny scene as well with him and a psychiatrist, and they're asking him about questions, and he's just, like, listing facts about his favorite baseball team. Yeah. <laughs> He's playing against the, like, he's playing chess with the uh, psychiatrist, basically, and playing dumb at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I think where we start with this conversation is we start start with the front in front of the camera and work our way back. Where I really want to do with this film, I think, is break it into the three chunks, uh, the three acts of the film, and kind of discuss each act uh, in, in detail. And where I really want to start is I thought this was such an interesting approach with the film to start with a hanging because it kind of like instantly kind of wakes you up and you're like paying attention because you're like, what what is happening? What's going on? Like it unsettles you and, and kind of puts you in this position of like looking of where like who you should be grabbing onto or latching onto as the the main character of the film or where the story is going. It kind of makes the threat of execution loom over the whole movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's not just like a trivial part of the plot. It's like it starts off with this is real. You could even mirror that with the most recent Suicide Squad movie where everybody's got like the things on their neck where if they do anything bad, they're going to have their heads blown off or something like that kind of thing. It, it It's a little bit more 
subtle than that but there is this like you said this constant thread of like if you step out of line you're going right back to the executioner's chair yeah and what's interesting is that it's kind of an all for one mentality like if any one of them steps too far out of line they're all going to be executed or sent back to their cells Mm -hmm. it's i don't know when the prisoner's dilemma like thought experiment came out as like a philosophical uh thing but this is basically the prisoner's dilemma if any of them fuck up it's all of them like on the line. And it's interesting because we talked about Franco in the last episode and like the first scene where we really see the prisoners working together is Franco tries to escape. So Wadislav and Jim Brown and a couple others just come kick the shit out of him and bring him back. Yeah. And then there's a the great line where <laughs> Vladislav, the major sees and he's like, what happened? And Vladislav's like, slipped on a bar of soap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And and going back even to earlier in the film, like I do want to say like the opening credit sequence is one of the best opening credit sequences of film that I've ever seen. Like it it was so entertaining and and this is actually something that at the time in the 60s wasn't utilized very often usually at this time we get like the long like five to ten minute opening credits with music and just like art basically and and this one we didn't get opening credits and that also kind of makes the film as somebody who has seen older movies it kind of felt a little jarring with opening with the hanging scene because i was like am i watching the right movie at first like expecting that but then I, I kind of forgot about the opening credits and then we get it when they do the roll call of each of the dozen and explain like who they are and what their crimes are and the major walks by each one and he reacts to who they are basically in real time as as they're listing out each character. I thought that was a fantastic way to do an opening credit sequence. Yeah, it drew you in and then kept you there. Like that initial like from the execution to this intro to each of them that was fun that was fun this movie is fun like this movie is it's kind of got a really let me rephrase this movie is very charming which is something i admire a lot in movies like remember when we talked about die hard and there's just a lot of little flourishes that make the movie pop like mm-hmm. I don't know. There's that great scene where they find out that the two guys who roughed up Ladislav are part of this other general's unit. So they start whispering down the line, like, those are the guys who beat up Ladislav. So they're like, those are the guys who beat up Ladislav. Those are the guys who beat up Ladislav. And then Maggot turns to Ladislav and said, those are the guys who... Then he ah. just looks away. <laughs> yeah. Finishes his smoke. Yeah. Yeah, like the movie is just filled with so many comedic parts like it's a fun movie but it's also a very funny movie at the same time Mm -hmm. the other part of like the first part of this movie that really draws you in is like lee marvin's portrayal of the major like he's he's so disenfranchised with the military at this point and you know like he sees problems and is able to come up with solutions that are unorthodox and and aren't necessarily in line with what the military wants or or expects but ultimately what what they need kind of thing yeah and they they recognize it too yeah and that, and that's why they recognize him for this role they're basically like we're so sick of you and like sick of your <laughs> shit but like this this is ultimately the perfect position for someone like you to lead this task force he's the mm-hmm. only man for the job yeah and it helps him bond with his men and that they are all they're all pissed off and they hate the military and he's kind of in the exact same boat like he's just as irritated and annoyed as they are 
Mm-hmm. But they've, as, like all of them, they've kind of accepted their place in the military-industrial complex, essentially, right? The one um, thing that really surprised me, just is just jumping forward a bit, is that I didn't actually realize the major was boots on the ground, part of the mission. Mm-hmm. I was actually yeah. kind of surprised by that. I was like, "Oh, you're going too? All right, like cool." Same with the uh, like the s- staff sergeant or whatever his oh, name, Sergeant Bowen uh, or something. Bowen, yeah, yeah. the military yeah. police officer. Um, yeah. What I'll say about that actually is, uh, like, I was expecting the major because they did bring that up several times, and, and they basically said, you know, like, if you don't have your team fully on board and like ready to operate under you then one of them's just going to kill you the minute you turn your back on them like during the mission kind of thing but it was the military officer that really surprised me that he was there yeah. um so i did a little digging into that and and i guess online the consensus with that was is that he essentially was a requirement to be there because they were all still technically prisoners and as we see during the mission he's not an active participant in the mission he's more just like overseeing that mm-hmm. nobody steps out of line really um, interesting that that's makes kind sense. of i didn't really consider that but that's an interesting point he's just kind of a lookout mm-hmm. like during the mission yeah so in the second part of the film like the the second act is really the run-in with the air force the pre-mission party and the war games actually you know what in the first part we haven't talked a little bit i was gonna say like it's really cool how they they use the name of the dirty dozen and how that kind of comes to be right i wish he looked at the camera though (laughs) so basically they yeah they just uh don't let them shower and shave for a bit and they're like boy you really are a dirty dozen Yeah, because yeah. this is where Franco revolts because they're using cold water, and then the major is like, you know what? If they don't want that, that's fine. And that, but then he's like, secretly in the back of his mind, he's like, it's so nice to see these guys finally come together on something, and like, I can use this, and I can, I can do this. And and he even says at one point too, he's like, I don't even think Pinkley's ever shaved with anything but cold water in his entire life before. Um, like some of these guys have never experienced that, but because Franco is complaining about it, and then the leaders of the group, Jefferson and Bronson, are I'm just gonna use Bronson's name. Vladislav. Um, yeah, Vladislav. Uh, because those two recognize this as, you know, this is really like where we might have some wiggle room. Like there, there isn't really anything we can do about this. Um, and this is where we can come together maybe as a group to essentially fight the man but like that's that's an important stepping stone in the team starting to operate together and the major acts on that and then like uh you said with the military police officer like when he calls in the dirty dozen like he doesn't quite wink at the camera but he is winking at the camera while he says it like he's got a big dumb grin on his face while he says it it's a little it's a little cheesy but uh yeah also like you liked it i i was i was into it yeah yeah, it's kind of like what I mentioned in the previous episode, how, like, Franco's belligerence actually helps the group form, like, <laughs> helps the group come together. It's like, what what were we talking about, Blake, a few months ago, that, like, you never want to be an asshole, but sometimes it pays to be friends with an asshole, because they'll advocate for you? <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm here. <laughs> um, Appreciate it. In that first act, uh, you see, like, a few different character developments one of them is with posy 
the big man. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like a big gentle giant. And I think that carries over to the longest yard, at least in the newest one. I don't know if it's in the older one as well, but um, it's this like soft, gentle giant, and they have to teach him to harness his uh, brutality. And that sh- that really nails home as uh, or Major Reisman is like telling him like stab me, stab me, and he's like pushing him. I'm like. I don't like pushing like that whole scene <laughs> uh, really showed like just how committed Reisman was to them and how like intelligent he was and just how, how much of a badass he is because he just mm-hmm. takes down this huge man with a knife that's like basically almost in his gut. He just takes him down like it's nothing. Yeah. And we know that Posey is on execution row for Basically, he one-punched a guy and murdered him uh, with one single punch for being a bully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which was perfect. Like, that's a <laughs> great backstory for one of the 12. Yeah, and, and it's a way to create some empathy in that character again. like, And we'll see with some of the other characters. Like I said, Jim Brown's character in the previous episode, Jefferson, is on death row as well for murdering a group of guys who tried to lynch him for being black and that's especially now and in this time period something that's much more like not okay anymore and like and racism being a a very more vocal problem Mm -hmm. today kind of thing right and i i love that jefferson gets his uh revenge against the most racist of the 12 maggot later in Mm. the film that was just like a nice little nod can we talk about that for a second? Because I do have a quibble. Yeah. Okay. So later in the movie, they all infiltrate this like fortress where they're having the Germans, the Nazis are having a big party. So Maggot is characterized as a extremely misogynistic religious nut job. Like he talks about how he murdered women for being like harlots and how he was divinely justified to do this. Mm-hmm. So at one point, Maggot is hiding in a room, and a German woman shows up looking for her sneaky link, as the kids say. So Maggot immediately, you know, grabs her, pulls a knife on her, tells her to scream, screws everything up, right? Mm-hmm. And that's good. That's all in character for him. Mm-hmm. But then Jefferson just runs up to him and shoots him in the back. I just, it felt a little anticlimactic to me. Like, I was expecting Maggot to be a bigger villain. Well, he, or, but he was, though. He caused the whole mission to collapse, basically. Like, they had to completely go into... Scramble mode. Like, yeah. offensive maneuvers, yeah. Like, he started shooting everything, and then everyone ran into the, the bomb bunker. shelters. Like, that was not part of the plan at all. Like, they were gonna, they were having everybody climb into there, and then they were just gonna shoot them in the building there. Mm-hmm. And and they that made it everything. That was good. They were supposed to be in and out. Yeah. And yeah. we'll talk about the chant later, but like... He- I, I I see that, and I see your point. I just, maybe it's just, I it felt a little anticlimactic. Like, Jefferson just shoots him, and then that's it. He dies. It could have been a little more intense, and it could have... I wasn't, like, been- expecting, like, a Dragon Ball Z fight between the two yeah, of them, yeah. but, like, I wanted a little more. It's just, bang, he's dead. Yeah, okay. I'll give you that, but he was, I, what I'll say is he was majorly disruptive to the plan. Yeah. Agreed. Some of the deaths, too, were a little bit, like, like that's where things don't hold up. People got shot, yeah. but you couldn't see them get shot, really. They just were implied to be shot, and then they just fall down. Like, ugh. 
I do. If I can get into another quibble while I'm on the complain train, <laughs> I uh, the third act, the big climax, kind of didn't work for me that well. Just because it was, I don't know if I'm just an idiot or you know, or <laughs> I don't know if I'm just an idiot or if it's the way it's shot. But like, I was very disoriented during the big climax. Like, I was like, wait, he's dead? No, him? Like, where's that bullet coming from? Like, it was very... Maybe they were trying to, like, recreate, like, the fog of war or whatever, but just at the end when... Okay, again, spoilers. Like, so the Major, Wadislav, and the Sergeant are the only survivors. Everyone else is dead. At the end of the hospital, I was like, wait, he's the only survivor? Like, it's just these guys? Like, it really threw me, I guess. Yeah, and I like I'll concede that one to you for sure because they actually don't show there are two characters in particular whose deaths they don't really show, and they also don't really make reference to it um, during the final fight scene, and that's a, a common complaint online is that there are one to two characters, and, and Posey's one of them, that we technically don't see ever die. Um, yeah, that yeah. was the other thing. I was like, where the fuck is Posey? Like, did yeah. he make it? Yeah. The people that we don't really know anything about are like lever and bravos and like jimenez yeah those two yeah they were just kind of background jimenez uh, Jimenez was the one who died in the tree uh, from parachuting yeah yeah that was kind of dumb so that actually the reason why that came to be was because the actor playing him is actually a famous singer of that time um and uh, this is actually really interesting because this comes back to a person of real life that we have talked about on this film before, or on this podcast before. Frank Sinatra was actually really friends with Trini Lopez, the the actor who was portraying Jimenez, and Frank Sinatra convinced uh, Lopez to quit um, because he was like, your career is going to go down the drain, your uh, recording career is going to go down the drain if, if you continue on this film uh in the role that you're in and so they actually had to off-screen kill him basically like that because he didn't finish up filming hmm. you know what so just in the context of the movie itself they all parachute down and then there's a moment where they're like where's him in as he's like oh he got caught in a tree and snapped his neck and they all just kind of like, well, we got to move on and like i thought it was going to turn out to be a trick like i thought maybe charles so bronson a little bit I thought Charles Bronson had like a trick up his sleeve, like a way for them to get out, but no, he just died off screen. Yeah. And like, it doesn't ruin the movie. It adds to the callousness a little bit. I guess. I guess this movie is so callous that it can't even be bothered to show the death. And I <laughs> yeah. guess that they, and I know it, I guess it was kind of unavoidable, like the actor dropped out, whatever, yeah. but it is kind of just like, oh, okay, well, there's <laughs> one. What I'll say about the last act is I thought the last act fit really well into the film in the sense that by the third act, I was really invested in each of the characters. And because I was so invested in each of the characters, I felt a lot of tension in like in the character deaths and who was going to live and who was going to die. Because as we find out in this film, this film is very okay with killing off as many characters uh, as possible, and some of them in heroic ways, and some of them definitely in less heroic ways. But there, there were definitely some really well-built, tense moments. Um, especially like one particular that jumped out at me is when Bronson's throwing the grappling hook up, mm. 
and Mm -hmm. the guys coming around walking and then the major forgets to actually pull the rope up and i'm like i was actually yelling at my tv the rope the rope (laughs) yeah Um, and then and then he says he's like whisper he's like damn it i forgot to grab the rope and then the the guy walking around just completely misses the rope anyway but there's like there's a few moments like that as well where you know when the major and bronson are walking through and bronson is barely understanding their german and they're just so afraid that they're going to be outed by the germans here um there's there's some really good tension building in in this last act i think that and i like i said i really cared about most of the characters so I, i was really worried for a lot of them i know uh i think one of my favorites was so pinkly donald sutherland he's standing by like the motorcade like he's pretending to be a guard overseeing the car and he smokes a cigarette and then there's another german guard walking by who needs a light Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of and at first he pretends he doesn't see him and then finally just let he just comes over lights the cigarette on his cigarette and he's like danka and then just walks away yeah Yeah. that was great so like uh (laughs) yeah and like you're worried at that point that that something's going to go wrong there kind of thing and then, like, Maggot's betrayal as well was, like, a really tense moment because you knew that at that point he was going to betray the group. And especially leading up to the acts of this. And we haven't talked at all about the second act, but maybe this is a good point to, to segue back to that. There's a lot that happens in the second act that affects the group and affects the group's relationships with each other in the major. Um, and one part of that is actually the party scene um, before they go off to execute the mission and essentially the major buys them all a bunch of booze and hires a bunch of prostitutes to have a night with them which is very much a no-no in the military (laughs) yeah i would say probably at the time too for like a modern audience they'd be like or for an audience back then they were probably like oh they are a dirty dozen (laughs) (laughs) oh my lord how dirty can they be no, they were probably acting like Maggot up in the guard post. Like, you're turning this movie into a den of sin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a really great scene as well, because like I said, it kind of foreshadows Maggot's betrayal of the group. And it's it's really intelligent of the Major to put him on guard duty during this so that he can't come down and harm anybody. Yeah. Hmm. But the other part of the second act that's really exciting, and this is what takes over the second act, is the rivalry with the Air Force. And we get one of the great scenes of the movie, which is them arriving at the Air Force to do practice um, parachuting. And we learn that the Air Force general has a beef with the major. And so the major basically, they're like, oh, where's your where's your general? I want to meet him kind of thing. Like, we're all out here to salute him and we want you to inspect our, our troops. And the major goes to the back of the truck where the dozen are. And he's like, all right, who wants to be a general? <laughs> and everyone's like, what? And he's like, uh, Pinkley, are, like, why don't you be a general? And, and everybody just starts laughing because they know that this is just going to be like, an absolute gong show right right and this is like again this is one of the standout moments of the film is pinkley just like basically bumbling through um like he just stumbles through the ranks and he's like walking like like he doesn't (laughs) want to be there kind of thing and then we get one of the greatest quotes of the entire movie um, oh yeah he stops at one of the men in uh the air force and he says uh where are you from officer and the officer, like, very cheerily goes, Madison City, Missouri, sir. 
I had to rewatch this scene today because Donald Sutherland's face, it just, it goes from like this bright, cheery, like smile. And he just kind of like goes dumb. And then he like, he kind of frowns. He's like, never heard of it. (laughs) And at that point, like just everybody bursts out laughing. I was laughing out loud. Like I probably giggled to myself for like two, three minutes after that, uh, because it's just such a great line. It's just, it's so disruptive to the entire military exercise at this moment too. Oh man. I also liked how uh, Pinkley was like, very pretty, Colonel, very pretty, but can they fight? (laughs) Can they fight? Yeah. (laughs) He really takes to the position pretty well. Yeah, and that's where, like, it's like you see more of, like, Donald Sutherland's range of acting, if you want to call it that. Like, he really, because we thought he was, like, completely dumb before, but you kind of are learning that he's not that dumb. He just kind of is simple, but he's actually, like, he he knows what's going on. He's got it together. Like, he can think on his feet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then after that, like, with all of the tension that this creates between the Dozen and the Air Force, the Air Force basically goes to their self-built training facility and i said that really weird um (laughs) self-built training facility 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 but anyway so they go there and for whatever reason i don't know if it's actually mentioned why the the major isn't there when they show up there but the major isn't there and he he gets there and sees that the air force is there interrogating them on what's happening because they don't know when they go to the Air Force that, that this is a bunch of criminals using their resources to be yeah. trained. Yeah, this is like a secret, secret mission. Yeah. yeah. Super secret. Yeah. And then we get like basically the dozen take out the whole Air Force uh, with the major's help kind of thing mm. um, at the base, which is hilarious in its own right. Like how, how they steal all the guns and they like, you know, rough everybody up. But, with permission of both the military police and the major <laughs> um but how much problems that creates for them and and this is really like you know building up to the tension of the second act of like you know the mission is almost canceled at this point in time right and so at that point in time the major just by like just the smallest amount of luck somebody kind of agrees with his stance at this point in time during the meeting where they're about to cancel it and they're like you know what let's see what like his group can do and i think he says something like my men are worth 10 of your men and i want to prove that Mm. that whole little mini mission to prove their worth was so fun that was easily the highlight of the movie for me yeah absolutely they just make a mockery of like everything that the uh colonel dasher breed uh or everett dasher breed yeah they just make a mockery of his soldiers yeah and and they just do it in such an unorthodox way but like it's so intelligent right like they the majors got them all thinking outside of the box essentially i love the scene where the like the squad is split into two and the one squad with Charles Bronson, they're there with the observer, which is like a general who's just watching and yeah. like, they're like, all right, boys, armbands. And they just put on a different color armband. The observer says something like, you can't do that, can you? And he's like, don't worry, we'll put the other ones back on later. And they just move <laughs> along. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and and like another great part of that is like the general who's overseeing the war games realizes that what's happening and what the major's group is actually doing, and like he's like trying to contain his laughter, and yeah. then he leaves because like I don't know if he's just like he doesn't want to ruin the surprise or if he's just like doesn't want to see the embarrassment of the the other general uh this group when when the majors team wins when the dozen win yeah i really loved that from that general as well like that was that was awesome to see him trying to keep his uh calm and then also when the uh the general that's with the group, he gets like pushed off the truck right. and then he the runs, he runs back and is just laughing his ass off as they've captured <laughs> yeah. Colonel Breed. Yeah. Yeah. Really that the seat where they like, <laughs> they handcuff a soldier and a doctor to a tree and the doctor's <laughs> like, Hey, there's an actual medical emergency. Like I'm needed somewhere. They're like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That's the, callous attitude of this movie just yeah there was a a line by uh major reisman that i think uh like nails his character is uh he's like i'm not very interested in embroidery only results that's right that yeah like he he like brought that to the team like all you have to do is get the results so that's that's where they really had that uh thinking outside the box and working so well as a team too, right? Yeah. Like everybody's on board and on the same page as to what they need to do to accomplish their mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really important to the final mission. And where I, I want to say there is like, you know, they have this count off and that was actually something that they developed really early on in the making of the film is the count off here. And so I don't know if you guys know what the count off is, but I've got it here if, if you want me to say it. But One... Uh, yeah, okay, you start. I can't do it off the top of my head. <laughs> One, down to the roadblock, we've just begun. Two, the guards are through. Three, the man, Major's men are on the sp- a spree. Four, Major and Winslaw go through the door. Five, Pinkley stays out in the drive. Six, the Major gives the rope a fix. Seven, Winslaw throws the hook to heaven. Eight, Jimenez has got a date. Nine, the other guys are going up the line. Ten, Sawyer and Giplin are in the pen. Eleven, Posey guards points five and seven. Twelve, Winslaw and the Major go down to delve. Thirteen, Franco goes up without being seen. Fourteen, zero hour. Jimenez cuts the cable. Franco cuts the phone. Fifteen, Franco goes in where the others have been. Sixteen, we all come out like it's Halloween. I loved that. Just, Just that they were using that and just repeating it over and over to really nail it home. Mm-hmm. And how everybody, again, everybody was on board with the mission and everybody could recite like every part, even though they weren't responsible for those parts. Like everybody yeah. was synced perfectly. And then when Jimenez dies, the major was like, what's number 14? And they recite it without Jimenez in it because Jimenez cuts the cable. Franco cuts the phone. They change it like instantly to Franco cuts the cable. Franco cuts the phone. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it worked. Like the, that plan of just memorization worked. Yeah. And then on the flip side as well, though, like the group were able to also improvise as needed, which is part of like where the major's strengths were as as the leader of the group ultimately too, right? 
because things, as we saw, did not go right at any point in <laughs> no. time. But boy, did they come up with a counter plan. Like, just... <laughs> so all the German officers hide in the bunker, and they decide to just find the air vents and just start chucking grenades and gasoline down yeah. there. That's where, if, if you're going to throw a criticism at the callousness of this movie, like, they murder everyone, both women and generals, in a, a pretty terrible way like that would be an awful way to go yeah um and and that was actually like i said one of the main criticisms when this movie came out and and lee marvin actually had a really good point uh he has a quote here when he was asked about it he said life is a violent situation it's not just the men in the chalet who are nazis the women were part of it too i like the idea of the final scene because it was their destiny to destroy or sorry it was their job to destroy the whole group and maybe in some way speed up the demise of the third reich we glorify the eighth air force for bombing cities where they killed a hundred thousand people in one night but remember there were a lot of women and children burned up in those raids Ish. and that and that's kind of the point that the director was making as well here is like war is hell and you know you have to sometimes do horrible things or sometimes horrible things are done in the name of war and what i thought was most interesting about this as well is because all of these were convicts and criminals you almost they almost get like a little bit more of a pass to do this right like if these were a bunch of white knights going in and doing that i think we would feel more conflicted about this but because they're the Suicide Squad. What if they were a bunch of Jew Nazi killers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and in that case as well, like in comparing to Inglorious Bastards, they yeah. feel more justified in doing something like that. Like, exactly. and that's where this film really compares. Like, you really can draw the comparison between this and Inglorious Bastards is in the third act when they indiscriminately murder a bunch of generals and women to complete their mission. Mm-hmm. And some of the parts that uh, I liked about Charles Bronson's character is, like, he was, like, such a 007 when he was in the uh, chalet or chateau. Like, he dispatched the four Germans that came up along the road right when they got there. Just so, like, quick and efficiently, like, just with the silencer. And then once the alarm started ringing later, uh, he just took out the guy who was on the radio and like in that moment he actually did like a james bond slide into action and shoot like <laughs> down the barrel right. of the gun like you know that james bond thing um so yeah that was extra fun too the critique that i have with the end of the film the last act is actually i think that the film could have potentially ended with at, like at the chateau basically and the way everybody died i thought it felt more abrupt being at the hospital afterwards and and basically being like congrats boys you did it yeah yeah that's kind of the other thing is they never talk about an escape plan they're always just like we'll improvise so then we've got the sergeant we've got the major we've got charles bronson and we've got franco on the car speeding away franco gets shot and dies and then like smash cut to the hospital. Yeah. It's like, yeah. whoa, okay. <laughs> like Yeah, it felt it just felt abrupt for me. That that's my small critique of the third act. I guess each of us has a small upsetting point. Actually, and and going back a step here, I wanted to talk about some of the deaths as well. Like were, was there any particular character that any of you guys were most upset about dying? They didn't die in a way that allowed you time to be like, oh no. Know what that I mean? Guy. Like yeah. I, right. People were just dying, and they were all just soldiers with helmets on. And like by then, I was like, "Wait, who's dead?" 
Like, yeah. where, where's Posey? Where's, like, like who... Things definitely got really chaotic. Yeah, like, who's the guy who got shot through the forehead by the sniper or whatever? It was a little too chaotic to give you the satisfaction of feeling something for your favorite characters dying. Yeah, there's no, like, slow-mo or, like, zoom in on the eyes or, like, big music stings. It's just like, oh, Pinkley got shot and he's dead. Well, and that part of that as well is, I I think, like, especially with, like, the six who were less important to the film um like their characters as abrupt as their characters were or as as unfleshed out as their characters were their deaths were also similar to that like for me the death that stung the most personally was jefferson's death like yeah like when when they basically were like okay you've got to somebody's got to be here to throw the grenades in yeah and we're gonna start the truck like it also somewhat felt like slightly unnecessary too, because like they could have just waited for him and then hopped in the truck afterwards. Same with the the two guys on the boat. Like, what? Why were they trying to start a random motorboat? Like yeah. that was ridiculous. They were under the bridge. It looked like the the tank that they were driving. Like, the, what was the plan there? It was a little ridiculous. Yeah, I wanted something a little more like. Uh, like the more recent all quiet on the western front like if like how people were dying than that that might have been like obviously they can't pull off the same things that we can now but there there could have been a little bit more i would have also liked more breathing room at the end like at some point it wasn't until after the movie was over though i was like oh i guess charles bronson is the only surviving dirty dozen right like yeah. i know this isn't a sentimental movie or anything but like I would have liked a little more at the end, like even just Bronson being like, oh, I guess I'm the only one left or blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I don't like know. a little bit more time to reflect kind of thing. Yeah. And they kind of try to do that with like over the credits, they show like all the characters who died, but like it feels a little like hollow and rushed, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that completely. It was like, it felt like the third act was, they just threw it all together and had to cut a bunch of stuff because it was already a two and a half hour movie. Yeah, or maybe they were starting to run out of money at that point, so they just had to rush through it, but yeah, not to say it's bad, but it's definitely... No. Um, it's definitely not the high point of the movie, like it could have been. You know yeah. what it is? It's the exact opposite of The Last Temptation of Christ, where <laughs> that movie had a terrible second act, this movie had a great second act. I agree, Like, and, and that's really the best part. Although, like I said, I thought the tension building onto this final act was really well done, it's just things were maybe a little a little too chaotic to be able to follow at times yeah. mm-hmm. but it it kind of ended it with a bang in an okay way like yeah it, pretty yeah. good not reneging on what i just said about the ending but like i did love charles bronson's final quote at the end like what is it like Ugh, killing generals becoming a habit yeah, yeah, right yeah. after the generals have left, after like being like, "You guys did such a great job," kind yeah, of thing, and right. like showering him with praise after you know he's he's on death was on death row essentially. Like, there's definitely he's definitely disenfranchised with the whole thing at this point, right? Yeah, and then he lifts up his newspaper like a grumpy dad at the breakfast table, <laughs> <laughs> like just I don't want to talk about this anymore. So yeah, flawed but still pretty good. Yeah, he said yeah. killing generals could get to be a habit with me <laughs> yeah that's also partially a callback to like why he was in there to begin with right like he was in there for shooting a deserter essentially who was running off with their medical supplies when he was 
trying to keep his task force alive kind of thing. And in that frame, like, that's awful. Like, again, you can empathize with him because he was trying to do the right thing in a sense. But <laughs> and this is where uh, the major says to him, he's like, well, there's your problem. You got caught like you should know you should have had no witnesses to that. <laughs> All right. So moving into sequels, prequels and reboots, as well as a little bit legacy of this film, I think as well is a good time to talk about this. So this is based on a novel from 1965 which in its of itself is actually based on some real life events that happened during World War II. Um, the Dirty Dozen is actually interestingly based off of a group of specialists called the Filthy 13, who were an Air Force uh, division in the U.S. military. And there was a lot of similarities between the two groups. The only notable difference between the two groups or the biggest notable difference is they were not criminals um they were an actual group of military soldiers who actually were charged with going into doing a highly dangerous behind the lines mission they were quite rambunctious they the party scene with the the hookers was something that actually happened the fact that they refused to shave um and shower that's why they were named the filthy 13 like they share a lot of commonalities with that they also, I've seen this photo of them like long ago where um, uh, one of them is painting war paint onto the other and they both have um, mohawks. So yes. Like, wow. Yeah, that's that classic photo from, it's from June 5th, 1944. Yes. Interesting. It's so cool to be able to like, you know, even, even if there's only grains of truth to really call back to the stories of the soldiers in world war one and two and, and their stories kind of thing. I think that, I think that's really important. You know, like this film isn't fully representative of what happened or even like fully authentic of like what military and what world war two is like, but you know, this also has to, there has to be entertainment value that to this too. Right. And this movie is entertaining. Like it succeeds in what it tries to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would agree. And the film itself, so sequels to this film, uh, there's actually several TV movies that come out in the 80s, which is quite a few years after. But um, we get The Dirty Dozen, The Next Mission, which again stars Lee Marvin. And after that, we get several other films, uh, The Dirty Dozen, The Deadly Mission, and then The Dirty Dozen, The Fatal Mission. Those TV movies actually star Maggot's actor as the general. Um, so he reprises a separate role in the mm. films. Huh. A real Mad Max kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> huh. And we actually potentially have a remake of this coming out at some point. It was announced in 2019 that they were going to do a remake of it. I couldn't find any news about it online, though, beyond that. So I don't know if COVID kind of... Uh, Kiboshed uh, it? Yeah. I don't know if uh, kibosh is a word. Or potentially the competition with like the Suicide Squad, right? And the new one? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Like, when we did Mad Max a couple months ago, and it was so surreal seeing, you know, the stuff that Fury Road did, but earlier versions of it in Mad Max 2. Like, watching this movie, it's like, oh, okay. Like, I'm getting Suicide Squad vibes, but from <laughs> like, but like 40 years earlier or 50 years earlier. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And like, I think that a remake of this film could potentially fix some of the issues that we had with the film, especially in the third act. Right. And I think that 
now Hollywood does pay more attention to stuff like this and and giving characters like, you know, more depth. Yeah, and more spotlight, uh, especially with like deaths and stuff like that. I don't know if it needs to be redone. Like, like we we have so, like so many variants of it already at the moment. Oh yeah. So like it would That's be fair. it would be a small like it wouldn't be a big movie. Like no one's looking for this as their next big blockbuster. No no film studio. Maybe I am. You don't know. <laughs> no, I kind of agree with you, Jason. Like, I, I think that this film was really great in the 60s, especially, like, in that post-war era. Like, like I said, I think there's about six actors of the of the main group of, of cast that were actually in World War II. Excuse me. And they actually, like, you know, if you go online and read about their backstories, like, there's so many war stories, other war stories that can be told. Like, each one oh, yeah. of them individually has a war story that could probably be told, right? Yeah, yeah. So we probably don't necessarily need to revisit this particular story again. I would like to see, like, a awesome Charles Bronson biopic. About his life in the war, too. And I guess, he, yeah, he had to live a really interesting life because he was born into, like, extreme poverty, wasn't he? Yeah, in Poland, I believe, or his, his dad. No, he was he was a coal miner. His his dad was a coal miner who came from Poland, and yeah, so he was like pretty rough living. Yeah, but okay, who's gonna play Charles Bronson? Because he has a very unique face. Yeah, 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 a very cinematic face. Well, they have such good prosthetics now that they can make anyone look <laughs> like him. Like maybe the guy who did Freddie but Mercury or something. Christian Bale, yeah. Give Christian Bale two weeks and he'll come out looking like Charles Bronson. <laughs> or uh, like Colin Farrell, because he was just the penguin and completely oh, changed yeah, everything. That's like true. He did, yeah. You couldn't recognize him. The other, I guess, inspiration for this that I should mention as well is during World War II, there was a group of 44 prisoners at Oklahoma State Penitentiary that sent a public offer to the President Roosevelt at that time, or Roosevelt, to basically serve in the Pacific War on a suicide mission against the Japanese. Like, they were like, let us uh, let us loose on them kind of thing. They didn't take them up on that offer, but it... Uh, <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like Elvis. Do you remember, isn't there like a viral thing where Elvis wrote President Nixon a letter asking to be made a secret agent or something? Uh, I'm pretty I, sure I I'm not it, making this up. I don't know up. if it was Elvis, but you are right. I do remember that as a story. It was, I'm pretty sure it was Elvis. Yeah, sounds that could like, be accurate. Sounds like something uh, Endgame Elvis would do. I know who should play Charles Bronson. I'm thinking Logan Lerman. He's he was in Hunters, the show. He was in Fury. As well, he's the like kid in Fury. I'm gonna have to Google that. I think I know that. what you're talking about. Uh, he's in Perks of Being a Wallflower. He's in Hunters. He like he's gotten like it's more one of his more recent roles. He with nah, his long hair. Pretty boy. No, no, with his long hair and like he he could pull it off, especially with prosthetics and stuff. He could pull it off. Yeah, he's kind of got a similar face shape. You're right, though. He'd have to. He either have to start drinking a lot of whiskey really quickly or, yeah, yeah. prosthetics. Yeah. I thought of uh, Till Schweiger from Inglorious Bastards, the one of the bastards who, like, really brutally murders a few of the guys in the bar scene. Oh, yeah, that guy. Or we just... We find some rando and we just use full deep fake technology. <laughs> just, yeah. Just get him on there. <laughs> It has to be someone who looks like they've lived a hard life. Yeah. Yeah. So any one of us. 
<laughs> I do have uh, a note of like the the filming, like technical technical shit. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's effects of filming. We're not there yet. We're not there. Well, yet. we're almost there, aren't we? Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay. I, I want to talk a little bit of the legacy actually of this movie too, and like where oh, yeah. it slots in, and and also a bit of the times too, because you know this movie comes out in the midst of the Vietnam War. Like, and Mike, you and I did plat. Platoon. I almost did platoon again. Um, <laughs> platoon. Platoon. Hope you like platoons. Um, but like this movie comes out at a really interesting time in American history because the war, the Vietnam War, was super unpopular, right? And so this film, in a sense, kind of glorifies some of the violence that so much of America was against at this point in time. And so there's an interesting contrast here, and and it's funny because this movie did really well it was one of the highest grossing films of 1967 but at the same time there were some underlying ideas that would have really rubbed a lot of people along the wrong way and but at the same time this film also kind of is counter military bureaucratic like the system kind of thing right like all of these characters are kind of acting against the system or are criminals of the system so this movie is really interesting and and the the history of, of when it came out is fascinating to me that makes sense though because i mean this movie portrays the military as so brutal and i'm going to use that word again callous this is kind of like the perfect encapsulation of all that bitterness people would have had yeah and i think that this movie today would do really well because there's less trust in like the military and the government Mm -hmm. than than back then right like in that golden era of post-war and like we're the best kind of thing mentality in America. I think there's this movie, even though we've said that, you know, it it holds up, but like if there's somebody who really doesn't like old timey films might have trouble getting into this film in the first like 10, 15 minutes. I think that the story of this film is still interesting enough. And the violence we've seen it done and redone by somebody, especially like Quentin Tarantino, that it becomes surprisingly timeless in that sense because of everything that comes out post this yeah and and the way yeah. like the way war just spits and chews out like these people like that are actual people and that's like an area that people didn't get to see back then but now we do see that more and more often and like since then we've had like rambo do that and then um like th- there's quite a few movies that portray like the ptsd that people have after or just like the how war ruins these soldiers lives yeah really it's relatable now that's a nice touch is that in the first second well in the scene in the movie when he's meeting the prisoners for the one time they're all introduced as numbers right yeah and even franco kind of when the major asks him, what's your name? And he just says like number 11, like it's kind of like you've dehumanized me like up yours. Yeah. Yeah, Number nine. Right. (laughs) Sorry, Franco. (laughs) Oh, and that comes up again. No, it was number 11. It was number 11. Oh, up yours, Jason. (laughs) Oh, Vladislav's number nine and Hinkley is number two. Oh man, I lost my whole train of thought there. <laughs> you said it it came back up later, and that's where Pinkley is uh like Yes. Being uh, Oh, that's right. Force comes in. Yeah. Right. Again, like throwing it back in the face of authority a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you dehumanize me. Well, guess what? I'm just a number to you. So Yeah. 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 It, it's really interesting because the film is a very anti authority film when you really look at it. 
and and I was reading like some people brought some really good points about how how this film almost often films it in like a prison sort of framing with uh, some of the camera shots. Yeah, interesting. The so so we've been talking about Quentin Tarantino a lot, and and I was said in the primer episode that there's a direct connection here to the Inglorious Bastards, especially, and the connection's actually not as direct as you might think. I had to do some digging into this. So this film, I said, had some sequels to it, and there's a potential remake. There was actually an unauthorized remake made in Italy several years after this film. It's actually called The Inglorious Bastards from 1978. Ooh la la. Um, which is a loose remake of this film. And then Quentin Tarantino obviously ripped the title of that film yeah. and the Inglorious Bastards is heavily inspired by that. And they actually like, there's several callbacks to that film, which is in itself a callback to this film. Wow. You know, there's a, that's the indirect connection to this movie as well. There's once upon a time in Hollywood, one of the films that, uh, what's Tarantino. his name? Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character stars oh. in the 14 fists of McCluskey is an homage to this film and the brutality of, of this film. And it's also an homage to inglorious bastards because of like how Quentin Tarantino's worlds kind of, you know, combine together. Yeah. yeah. I can feel myself aging trying to wrap my set around that. It's really interesting <laughs> actually. And yeah. you know, uh, this is a thought that I've had before for the podcast is, I think this summer we're probably going to do, or I personally want to do a parody of the Jaws series in Piranha, um, because it's considered one of the greatest parodies of all time. But I think that we're almost at a point in this podcast where we can start doing some segments of watching films that either directly or indirectly relate to other films we've done. And a good example of that, Mike, is I really, really do want to watch uh, a night to remember with you at some point the original titanic film oh really interesting uh-huh. and, and there's some other ones that i've been writing down and keeping track of as as we've been going through this podcast so the other other films that have connections to this the many saints of newark the sopranos kind of sequel film that came out a couple years ago they actually are this film is actually featured in that and then do you guys remember the movie Sno- small soldiers from your childhood I sure do, bud. 90s all the way. So four of the actors from this film, including Ernest Borgnine and Jim Brown, are actually reunited in that film to uh, voice all of the small soldiers. Wow, that's amazing. I am so... (laughs) So he's in SpongeBob, he's in Small Soldiers. This guy was... Unsung, one of the unsung heroes of my childhood. Oh, yeah, Ernest Borgnine. Like, it's surprising how much he uh, appears in our childhoods. Interesting. I believe I have that film on VHS somewhere, and I kind of want to watch it again now. And I don't remember it being great, but it's time for a rewatch of that. Okay, well, have fun and tell me how it is. All right, now let's move into effects and filming. Go ahead, Jason. It's very small, but uh, one of the little effects that was kind of funny was when uh, Major Reisman was trying to get Jimenez to Jimenez to climb the rope, and he shoots the rope. And then (laughs) suddenly, like, as soon as he shoots the rope and it falls, um, Jimenez, like, is, like, sped up as he goes up. Like, that was just a funny little, like, where it it doesn't translate well to today, but that's, like, all they could do to, like, imply how fast he was going up the rope then. 
It was just like the tiniest little funny thing. I noticed that too. That's it. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So in terms of effects and filming, some things that I thought were really interesting, Lee Marvin actually kind of almost did some consulting on this film as well, because like, you know, with his experience with the war, he wanted to make sure that the uniforms and the weapons and everything kind of that they were using was realistic and comparable to the real life war. Although he was kind of a critic of this film because he said that the film itself doesn't really portray war accurately at all and especially to his experience of the war right and i believe he later does a film that's more much more similar to to what his experience was the final sequence when they're driving like the truck out of the chalet that scene when they were going to film it lee marvin didn't actually show up to set that day because he was just drinking uh, (laughs) yeah in a pub and so basically, like, they they dragged him out of that, poured a bunch of coffee down his throat, and then Bronson was like, I'm literally, I'm going to fucking kill you. Uh, like, he literally <laughs> said that to him. He was so mad. Um, Jesus. And, and that kind of goes again with, like, Lee Marvin. Like, he was pretty well known for being a pretty heavy drinker and smoker <laughs> during this film and, and subsequently. And he lived a pretty hard life overall. <laughs> You can barely tell that he was, like, probably hungover or drunk constantly throughout this movie. Like, he's pretty clear. To the kids watching at home, if you ever watch a movie filmed before 1970, just assume the lead actor is either drunk or hungover. And if you're watching a film between 1970 and 1990, you can assume they're on coke. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) It's one or the other. (laughs) And if it's uh, 2000 plus, probably Adderall or any other combination of things. (laughs) Well, unless it's Seth Rogen, who's definitely uh, smoking weed. Yeah, well, him too. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, weird, weird digression. One of our favorite scenes with uh, Donald Sutherland pretending to be a general, like that, because of that scene, he was cast in MASH as one of the main characters of the <laughs> film MASH. Very popular film that became a very, very important TV series. Jim Brown, his story, and I mentioned this in the primer a little bit, how interesting of a story it this was with his Uh, NFL career so he was in his late 30s at this point like he was already considered one of the greatest football players of all time and so he was going to miss his training camp to finish filming on set of this and so the NFL was not at all okay with that and his the owner of his team ended up giving him an ultimato of like if you don't come back, you're fired from this team. Like, it's Hollywood or it's football, and you have to Woo. choose. And the next day, Jim Brown thought about it, and the next day he announced his retirement because he was like, I'm already going out on top. Like, what more do I have to prove yeah. in my NFL career? It's time to become wow. a, an actor now. And I think he chose wisely because he nailed it in this role. Yeah. He's like one of my... He's really good. Yeah. Jefferson's character is one of my favorites of the film. Like... And and this is even what Jim Brown said as well. Like, he's like, I loved my role in this film. Like, you know, I was the quiet leader. I was my own man. And this was even at a time where Hollywood wasn't giving these roles to black people. And he's like, he said he'd never had more fun making another movie. The cast was awesome. And he's he said, I worked with some of the strongest, craziest guys in the business, which is absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. That's so awesome. Uh, um, strongest, craziest guys in the business. <laughs> 
Jim Brown, Ernest Borgnine, and uh, Donald Sutherland played in like in another movie a year later too. So mm-hmm. like it obviously worked well for him to transition with this big movie. Yeah, and and speaking of that too, like I said before, like Donald Sutherland, like this is his breakout role. Like he he was a struggling actor up until this point in time, and there was actually another actor slated to play his role, and just by sheer luck the other actors dropped out and he was able to get into this and and that led to a a pretty pretty important career and becoming one of the most important canadian actors of all time robert aldrich the director was told that if he cut out the scenes of jim brown dropping the hand grenades down into the bomb shelter that he would probably be nominated for best director for an oscar wow and he chose not to because his his uh thought was that war is hell and that he wanted to show that and and not spare would it have been that much better if they just shot them all well i mean in the original like the original idea of the plan i don't know if they were gonna shoot all the women but like you know they were there and they were doing stuff and like lee marvin said as well you know like they're not absolved entirely of their roles like they were married to some pretty dastardly people so that makes sense i wonder what else was in the oscar contention for 67 uh, this movie did actually win an Oscar. It won for Best Effects and Best Sound Effects. Huh. Um, John Cassavetes was nominated for Best Supporting Role. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, Franco. Yeah. That makes sense. Would you guys consider him, though, the best performance in the movie or, like, Oscar-worthy? The best actor. To me, the best yeah. actor was uh, Ernest Borgstein, Mermaid Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought his performance really brought it home. It was good, but it wasn't, like, essential. I think Lee Marvin was it for me. Like, I I personally think Jim Brown is, like, kind of a breakout role. Like, you could say Jim Brown or you could say Donald Sutherland really, really crushed it in their roles, especially, like, considering how how this was their, you know, the movie that put them on the map kind of thing. Yeah, they bet a lot on it, yeah. I, I think I got to give it to Lee Marvin if I'm going to give it to somebody. Right. Although John Cassavetes, like, he did, you know, he really committed to the role. And that's where I think he, he does deserve it, because uh, he gave the audience something they probably hadn't seen before. Whereas you have seen a Lee Marvin type, and you've seen, like, all these other types. But um, that's where, like, Franco's character was the like i i think that's why he won was because he gave them something different like the the like controlled chaos craziness vibe it might have been like a new phenomenon or something like that with how he acted that i don't know at the time but or like a villain who's on your side yeah well on your side and massive air quotes but yeah yeah. Yeah. (laughs) no actually like Watching this movie, I kind of mentioned this in the last episode. Like, he's almost like, in some ways, he's the most useful member of the group. Like, yeah, he brings all people together. Stealing all the cars? Yeah. <laughs> like, he's crushing it. Even though he doesn't fully understand maybe the implications of his actions always, other people can take, like, see the usefulness in him, right? Yeah. Like, he, he was a, an effective tool to be used by the right people. An mm-hmm. instrument. Instrument, yeah. He was kind of a tool, too, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're not quite instrument level, Franco. You got to work up to it. 
I actually have a funny story of subsequent what happened with this film and the actors. So apparently Lee Marvin was hammered at a cocktail hour in London um, while they're promoting this film. And he propositioned an older woman in a very vulgar way, apparently. It doesn't say how, what he said. <laughs> so he, apparently he was so drunk and his speech was so slurred that she asked him to repeat it. And then he did. And that woman turned out to be Sean Connery's aunt. Um, oh, no. Who Sean Connery was not happy about. Um, so he started walking towards Lee Marvin. And then the producer of this movie pulled Sean Connery inside and was like, please don't hit him in the face. He's got his close-ups tomorrow. And <laughs> Sean, when, she, when she, he was told that, Sean Connery just like burst out laughing and was like, you fucking producers, and just walked away. <laughs> yeah. um, that's an amazing that's really story. funny. So I like the implication though. Like, yeah, you know, you can hit him, just not in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and that's where he just shrugged it off and he was like, Oh, Hollywood. All right, screw this. <laughs> and that kind of trope has been in so many movies too. Like, not the face. Yeah. Because they're like the pretty boy or whatever. Yeah. That's funny. Remember in community when Jeff is about to get into that fight and he's like, Not the face, that's the moneymaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So score not a lot to talk about here it's pretty good it's classic war movie score you know it's not something that i'll probably personally return to or think about more than just a side note there's a lot more going on in this film than that yeah that's yeah. where that's where like the great escape wins drastically oh, by far that, such an iconic score from the great escape yeah like even if you haven't seen the movie you know the score this movie i don't even really remember much music at all playing Neither do I, to be yeah. honest. The Great Escape is the like do 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 Wait, is that Indiana Jones? That's Indiana Jones. Oh fuck. It's almost it's very close to that. Are we are we thinking about the same movie? I don't know how I mixed that up. The Great Escape theme. Let me fucking play it. You know the theme though. Like you will know it when you hear it. I guess we've got a Dial of Destiny on the brain, which, by the way, is the stupidest fucking Indiana Jones title I've ever heard. <laughs> I, Dial of Destiny? It did okay. not review well. I'm, I'm. Is it already out? No, they debuted it at Cannes. Oh. You know, like, he was old 15 years ago. Now he's really old. <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, yeah. listen to All the right. uh, the Great Escape soundtrack. You'll recognize it. It's very similar. Like it has the same vibe as like an Indiana Jones kind of it's jaunty. Yeah, yeah. So uh, much better on that. And yeah, the Dirty Dozen. Not not a standout score by any means. All right, personal reviews and the partner factor. I think Jason, this is your movie. Let's uh, let's hear your thoughts first. Yeah, what'd you think, birthday boy? Yeah, I liked it. I uh, I loved like all the like what we did learn from the characters. Like the the depth that we did get was enough for it to be satisfying. Even though, like, of course, now in modern times, I would want more. But um, I liked the yeah the character development. The storyline was good. I really liked the um, like that second act where they go in and uh screw with the other the other army people the air force that was really fun and like the planning of this mission i think they they kind of like nailed the the planning of it which was really fun to see like everyone loves like it's like planning a heist kind of yeah that, like that style of uh mission and well and i think a lot of 
heist movies are derivative of this film. Yeah, especially any war-related ones, too. Like, the one where they steal the art from the Nazis and whatever. Overall, really liked it. It's up there in my old war movies to watch. It makes me want to watch more movies like this. Uh, I've yeah. heard that Kelly's Heroes? Yes. Yeah, Kelly's Heroes would probably be my next watch after watching this because I, I want to see a little bit more. It was pretty fun. And I would definitely rewatch it again after um, maybe another The Great Escape viewing. So it's up there with those. It's not at the top, but it's in, like let's say, a top 10 of old war movies. Another one that I really want to watch is Gallipoli. Gallipoli? Gallipoli? Anyways, that's another one that I want to add in there. It's a different vibe. It's more realistic. But uh, anyways, yes, really liked this. Uh, would watch again. Would recommend to anyone who likes film or likes war movies. You kind of have to be able to... it's not a war movie either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not like a hardcore war movie, but the setting. Anyways. Yeah. Um, Annabelle was not down to watch this. Uh, she's like, I'm not watching a shitty old war movie. Like it was, and I think it, it was good that she didn't because it, the parts that dragged a little bit, that's what would take yeah, her out of it. She has big problems with pacing. Yeah. Yeah. Been, like pacing, pacing has to be right for her to watch. And this wasn't it was one so of those close. Movies. It was so close to being yeah. modern, but it just quite misses doesn't quite land it with yeah. pacing in, in a modern era. I hope AI can remake it to be perfect for modern audiences. Maybe that's what happens with this one. As a writer and a creative type, I hate you for saying that. <laughs> You're a fucking traitor. But anyways. <laughs> They're going to steal your ideas anyways with the AI. Anyways, let's uh, keep going. <laughs> Mike, what's your thoughts? Maybe if I get into a car accident, you guys can make an AI duplicate of me to keep doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like Michael Tron 3000, what did you think of this movie? <laughs> 7 out of 10. <laughs> anyways, I would give this movie a 7 out of 10. Um, <laughs> yeah. I actually, I had to watch this movie over the course of three days just because I've been so busy, which kind of worked, actually, just for the way the movie's broken up. Really liked it the first day, really, really liked it the second day, was a little baffled and confused the third day. Hmm. Yeah, it comes really, really close to being modern, like you guys said, but doesn't quite hit the mark, which... You know, you can't really fault something 50 years old for not being, you know, 50 years better. But no, it's a pretty good movie. And like, I don't even think you necessarily need to be a fan of old movies to watch it. I think like if you're a fan of a certain type of like gritty, cynical movies, you might enjoy it. Like a dark comedy almost. Kind of, yeah. And you know what? Watch it with your dad. Spend some time with your dad and watch it with him because he's really going to like it. Or another parental figure, like a grandpa or uncle or just some guy that you find in an alley (laughs) somewhere, whatever. Yeah, just find a slightly older man with gray hairs and just watch the movie with him and he'll probably really like it. Yeah, you guys have a lot of fun together. (laughs) I I really, really like this film. I'm probably... Maybe the highest on this, um, although maybe tied with Jason. Like, I thought this film was great. Like, I had a blast watching it. I, I agree with, like, you know, some of the critiques about the third act being the weakest act of the three. 
definitely returning to this like it was just so entertaining i got so caught up in in the characters and you know there are characters that they didn't want to die again i was somewhat confused by who died and who didn't <laughs> jimmy brown's character really felt like an unnecessary death to me um, my head canon is that Jimenez and Posey both faked their deaths and they're alive somewhere. <laughs> I didn't see a body. You can't prove to me they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> Out making music and playing football. Yeah, <laughs> as God intended. <laughs> and like I said, the stakes felt really high by the third act. Like, you know, like it, these are characters that I've, I've spent the last hour and a half, hour, 50 minutes with. And, and I was having a really good time with them. I wanted to see more of them. I think where this film, if you were going to remake this film, I think you would maybe approach it with a mini series of, of the Dirty Dozen and really like delve into like each act of the film. Yeah, and that way you can actually focus on more of the characters. Because, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not the movie's fault, but there were certain scenes like in the training camp where they'd pan over someone's face and I'd be like, who the heck is that? Like, yeah. never seen this man before in my life. <laughs> yeah, when they when they said Jimenez is dead, I was like, I paused the movie and I was like, which one was that again? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The guy with the guitar, yeah. 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 I would love to see them escaping back to D-Day, like to the to the shore. Mm, that's that's sure. Third, yeah, the third part like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would it that would kind of remind me of like the last part of the stand with Stu and uh, the other guy's name Tom. Um, yeah, yeah. Tom Cullen and how like they're they basically their adventures of like getting back over winter. Um, it would be similar to that like their their escape at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I think you could fully flesh that out and make a really interesting mini. That would be a good opportunity to like hammer home the loss too, right? Like, yeah, do make that the second to last episode of the miniseries. Make it really dark and morbid, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Give me money and I will write it for you. (laughs) (laughs) And there's so many more adventures that they could have. Like, they could almost be a a second season or something of the miniseries. Like, I think... Well, we have that in the TV series that we can check out, the TV movies, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's right, I guess. I do find it funny, though, that Lee Marvin did like this movie, but he still reprised his role in the TV movie years later. (laughs) Yeah. Probably because he needed more drinking money. Like, it's it's funny because he didn't like it, but he also really enjoyed it kind of thing. Like, I, I, I think he didn't like... Yeah, like he had very big critiques with the film, like and and especially as somebody who was in World War Two, like you know, is something portraying war in 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 more of a whimsical kind of or or not whimsical but callous kind of way. Um, it's our word of the day. Yeah, but anyway, that's that, and we have a draft to do before we wrap this episode up, so we need to get to that like right now. We're doing the draft. We've done this once before, and essentially what we did was each of us randomly picked a category, and then you had to draft three movies of that category, watch them, and present them, and connect them all together. I'm going to say that I won the last draft because... I picked a director, Sidney Lumet, that neither none of the three of us had watched. And, and you have not shut up about it since. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time for one of you two to uh, win this next one. So, And the other thing that we did was we actually took out the categories that we did last time. So this is going to be all original categories. So I've what, got them shaken up in my hat right here. So maybe just for the benefit of the viewers, what categories have you taken out? So I took out wildcard, director, and um, genre. So we now have franchise... Six seasons in a movie, actor and actress, 
and year as our remaining categories here. Okay, those are some solid categories. Oh yeah, we still got some good ones left here. Who wants to be the first choice or make first pick? Blake, why don't you go? All right. Everybody's seeing that I'm not looking. It is franchise. Hey. Interesting. Nice. All right. Mike or Jason, who wants to go next? Mike, you go. Okay. Such a gentleman. Uh, okay, I got... Drum roll. Six seasons in a movie. Yes! Damn. Somebody got it! Oh, man. I was really hoping not to get that one. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> There's some cool stuff you can do. Like, we've already even talked about MASH on this episode. That's um, true, yeah. So, you've got you've got a lot of options. I don't know how you're going to structure it exactly. Maybe Can you uh, explain a little more about this category for the benefit of those at home and also me? <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, Six Seasons in a Movie is a joke from uh, Rick and Morty, which... Community. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah, it's community. It's community. Yeah. Um, Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's a Dan Harmon joke, and right. it basically is like you know, like basically the category that we've picked is like an old movie and a TV series that accompanies it or or remakes it. On the flip side, what you could do is an old TV series that is remade into a new movie. Like basically any TV show that has a movie. And one, either one or both or the other, takes place pre two thousands. Completely open. If you so, I watch... can do a TV show that was based on a movie or a movie that was based on a TV show. Yeah. pre two thousand. Okay, cool. So, like, a, for example, if you want to watch six seasons of The Simpsons and then watch The Simpsons movie, that would qualify. Okay. Um, I don't actually have to watch all six seasons to like six seasons of something. You know, do I? you to try to try to do your best of watching my as best. much as you can. Make it make it your show for the the next month and a half. Ay ay ay. Okay. Um but if if the show it, alternatively if the show only has like 3 seasons then that's fine. It, it it's basically like the spirit of the of the six choice. seasons in a movie kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Right, I will embody mind. the spirit. Okay. <laughs> All right. Who do you want picking it? Me or uh, Mike? You just do it. All right. It is actor, actress. Actor, actress. That's pretty fun. Okay. I'm down for that. Yeah. So a movie of three people. Maybe it's two, an actor and an actress together. We'll see what you come up with. Like a cat dog situation? Do the Halls. Oh, that'd be fun. How many movies are they in together? I don't know. I just threw that out there. I believe it'll be coming out either in early July or at the the second part of July. We'll we'll talk about that separate, I guess. But something to be excited about going forward. Awesome. And that is it for the episode. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. It was a fun little ride. Yes, yes, yes. Happy birthday, Jason. Oh, thank you very much. Turning 30. All Jason wants for his birthday is for everyone listening to like and subscribe. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nice. It's crime fillers. Sorry, crime thriller. Crime film noir is our next one, and we're thinking maybe film noir for the next episode. Ooh, that's fun. Oh, I got some recommendations. Yeah. All right, but that's it. If you have any recommendations, let us know in the comments below. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.